I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit AbyssBattery.com. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. What's up, everybody? It's your host, Will, coming back for a new episode of the Hunt Stand Podcast, powered by 10-Point Crossbows, defining crossbow precision for over 25 years. On this week's episode, we got Bowhunter Dime member Justin Czar coming on with us to talk public land whitetail hunting. He's fixing to go out to Kentucky to chase after some deer himself with bow in hand, and he's going to give us some strategies on how he chases after these frisky little whitetails on public land. And what he's going to be doing is he's going to be diving into specifically how he approaches public land from an e-scouting perspective using hunt stand, what he's looking at, different layers, different features, and what he's doing to help define those areas that he's wanting to go in on and having that A, B, C, D all the way through Z plan. So he's going to go through that. He's going to go through some other strategies, tips, and tactics, and bring y'all some golden nuggets that you could pick up on, especially if you're fixing to go chase after some public land whitetails yourself here in September, or if you're going to be doing it later throughout the season. But either way, Justin's got some knowledge that you don't want to miss out on. Again, y'all, I just want to thank y'all for tuning in to the Hunt Stand Podcast. We really appreciate the support. If you haven't yet, make sure rate, review, subscribe, follow on whatever platform you're listening to. And if you have some thoughts and ideas for podcasts, would love to hear it. If, who knows? Might even get you on the podcast yourself. You never know. But if you come at me with a good idea or a good idea for a guest, would love to hear it because I love listening to y'all and knowing what y'all think. So if you want to get that to me, drop it in my email. We'll put that in the description below. That way I can make sure you are heard. If you haven't yet, make sure you got the HuntStand app downloaded. We got free, pro, and something you're going to want in your pocket this fall is pro whitetail it's got all the features you need to chase after whitetail and maximize your time in the woods and be more efficient this fall we've got the new rut map layer we've got the whitetail activity forecast whitetail habitat and more that you don't want to miss out on so if you want to unlock all the features of pro whitetail upgrade today i'm gonna quit rambling and here's our guy justin czar well dude you ready to get this thing rolling go man all right brother well, Justin, man, first and foremost, welcome back to the Hunt Stand Podcast. We had you on back in the fall to talk about some rut strategies and yeah. specifically to not overthink it. And actually, that's the number one downloaded podcast I've had so far of the hundred something episodes I've done. So kudos on that, dude. But uh, awesome. That's wanna, good to hear. I can't complain about it, dude. But man, just want to welcome you back. And before we get started, you know, I like to do that 30 foot tree stand view, kind of give the listeners those that may not know who you are, just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself, man. Sure. So uh, obviously, I think you introduced me, Justin Czar. You know, by day, I uh, help run a web development and IT consulting company. And then uh, in my spare time, we run bowhunting.com and bowhunter die. Uh, we've been doing this, I think we're on our 14th season now, as scary as that sounds, of, of bowhunter die. Wow. Um, so pretty crazy that we're getting ready to, to head into you know, middle of our second decade of, of doing that. Wow. But, you know, I grew up here in Illinois, grew up in a, in a bow hunting family. My dad actually owned an archery shop when I was a kid uh, and my mom worked second shift. So after school, she would 
dropped me and my sister off at the at the bow shop and I got to hang out at the bow shop all night with my dad and his buddies. Um, he was a check station at that time as well. So we were checking in deer. Um, you know, he taught me how to build arrows when I was gosh, eight or nine years old, we'd, we'd leave the bow shop at night and go home. And that's back before arrow wraps were a thing. So we used to crest a lot of arrows. We'd dip them in paint and then sit with a little spinner and we'd crest them with a little, uh, little paint, fine paint brushes and then fletch them on, you know, bits and burger jigs. Yeah. So yeah, that was my kind of my upbringing. You know, I've been around archery and bow hunting since as long back as, as I can remember. Uh, and, and here we are. Dude, that's quite the journey, man. That's pretty cool, though. Yeah. But, so you said cresting. I'm unfamiliar with that. Yes. Oh, cresting. So this is, again, prior to arrow wraps. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So back in those days when you wanted a bright, you know, color on the end of your arrow, yep. really to help with visibility, you know, obviously you could, you know, fletchings were huge back in those days where you're mm-hmm. shooting, you know, like five-inch fletchings. Um, but the back of the arrow, you would actually dip it into paint. And it would be like a bright color paint. So we had this kind of jig made up where you would, you would put a bunch of arrows in it. And then the paint was in these like vertical, like thin canisters. Huh. And you would dip them down in there all to the same you know level. You'd put like a mark on the arrow, like six inches or eight inches, yeah. whatever you wanted. And then you'd pull it up and you'd let it hang there. So it would drip off the ends, any excess. You'd let it dry overnight. And then the, the following day, once it was dry, you would actually put it on what looked like a lathe, kind of like a spinner. So mm-hmm. the arrow would be spinning around super fast. And then you would take um, like model paint for like painting model cars in a little paintbrush. And if you wanted those little you know circles that went around in different spots, you know, you would just touch mm-hmm. it on the arrow and it would leave a little a little mark. So you would crest all of your arrows and put different like designs on them to make them look cool. Uh, It's way easier now with arrow wraps. Yeah. But yeah, we spent a lot of time doing that. I mean, again, I was eight, nine, 10, 11 years old, something like that, you know? And then once those would dry, we had a table, like a, not the full table, but almost like a jig set up on a table with a bunch Mm -hmm. of bits and burgers that went around in a circle. Um, And that was, you know, prior to having all the fast set glues that we have now. So we were using Loctite back in the day, the boning Loctite. And, you know, you'd put it in the clamp, run a bead, stick it on there. And then that thing had to sit for 10, 15 minutes before you could go to the next fletching. So you would try to do a dozen arrows at a time. So you do one and then move to the next, to the next, to the next. By the time you got around, then you could pull the clamp off, rotate it and go to the next one. So building arrows took a lot longer back in those days. I mean, that's also when we were gluing knocks onto arrows. Nowadays, you index the knock, right? Mm-hmm. The uni-knock came out and you could put it in there and you could spin it around. In the early days, that wasn't a thing, man. You literally glued the knock onto the back of the arrow. And if something happened to the knock or you wanted to move it, you were cutting it off. Then there was a little tool to clean the back of the arrow and then gluing a new one on. Dude. Learn something new every day, man. Didn't know I was going to get a little <laughs> archery tech lesson this morning. I was like, yeah, yeah, dude, building arrows back then, that took quite a bit. I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we used to build a lot of custom arrows for for guys that wanted specific color. So it's this has been a thing since the 80s. Guys wanted very specific colors on their bows to like, you know, whatever, match their sports team or, you know, whatever they they liked. But yeah, the, the invention of arrow wraps, um, and quick set glues. And then like your, like your, um, what is it? The easy fletch, the yep. AAE easy fletch little jig where you can do three at once. Like that's just made building arrows like infinitely easier than it used to be. Big time. Big time. Yeah. When I used to manage a shop, I just had a little carousel with yep. bits and bergs on it and I would just get after it. Yeah. So. But I mean, you could, you know, run a bead, throw it on there. Yep. And if you're using like the accelerator, one little spray of accelerator and mm-hmm. it's, it's locked in place and you could do the next, the next one immediately, you know, in the early dude, we were sitting and waiting and waiting and waiting for stuff to dry. Cause he didn't want to pull the clamp off too soon and then have the fletching move or something. So, yeah, I mean, we used to buy uh fletch tight in these like, I don't know, pint mm-hmm. maybe can cans. And then you'd pour it out into these little dispensers, these little plastic, I guess, yeah, they were little plastic dispensers that you would use to, to put it on the, you know, on the fletching. So yeah, times have changed quite a bit, my man. Yeah. I I couldn't imagine doing that. I had a customer one time that came in and actually it was a 
customer's assistant came in one day. I got a phone call and asked if I had 200 FMJs in stock. I'm like, yeah, I got plenty of them here, you know. I got like 250, 260, something like that. Guy comes in, he goes, I need 200 FMJs, and I need to have them. You know, and they're the stock that come with the bonding veins and everything. And he's like, do you have bear shafts? I said, no, that's all I got in stock right now. He said, well, I want to get them all four-fletched. I'm like, 200 arrows, four-fletched. He's like, yeah. And I was like, what are you going to do with that? And he goes, well, my boss is just the kind of guy that if he shoots and loses an arrow, he just shoots another one. He doesn't even go and look for it. And I'm like, I will gladly take your money, but dude. We need to talk to your boss. <laughs> you shouldn't be missing that much. Number no, one. <laughs> I know. I'm like, sure, a big order. I was going to say, that's an expensive order. Those was, things are not cheap. Dude, it ended up being something like $2,500 that day. Yeah. I mean, it was that's nice. good for you. But... <laughs> I know. Nice little bump for the shop. The owner's like, did you sell $2,500 in arrows yesterday? I said, yup. <laughs> so, that's pretty funny. Yeah. Well, man. I wanted to get you on today because I know you're going to be going and doing some public land hunting this fall here pretty soon. And I want to get a podcast out there for our listeners that, you know, they deal with the traffic. They might be doing it their first time or they're interested or we got guys that have been doing it that they're hoping to pick something new up. So, you know, talk to us a little bit about your experience with public land hunting and just kind of what initially drew you to hunting on public lands. Yeah. Well, gosh, I guess there's a couple things, right? Um, so let's start here in Illinois, kind of what, what drew me to it. Uh, mm-hmm. Realistically, it was a couple of my friends, you know, they started doing it and um, this is probably going back close to a decade now, you know, and at that time, I remember that the, there was a kind of a stigma around public land, like, oh man, you got to go hunt public. That sucks, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, fortunately at the time it was a lot less popular and what people didn't realize it was a lot better than, than a lot of people thought it was. So there was a stigma of like, oh, geez, you have to hunt public and it's, it's no, no good. And I had a couple of friends that had been doing it for a while and they're like, man, we're having, you know, some pretty good luck. We're seeing some good deer. We're having fun. Like you should try it. And the first year that I did it, um, you know, I was having a really bad year on my private farms. I didn't have a lot of deer on camera that I was really all that excited about chasing. And it was just kind of like a bummer of a season. Yeah. And uh, I was like, you know what, I'm going to go check out some public. I just, I wanted a, a change of scenery is what I wanted, you know, because I just got sick of hunting the same little hundred acres all the time. Like, mm-hmm. I know it sounds awesome, but it's like, there's only so much you could do on a hundred acres. Yeah. So, um, you know, I decided to, to go hit public and, you know, fortunately for me, that first weekend that I went, I killed a freaking dandy, you know, mid one forties buck, you know, my first weekend ever hunting public in my life. And I was like, this is great. Um, you know, and I haven't killed one since now, granted, I haven't spent a ton of time doing it here in Illinois, but that was really what kind of got me my start on mm-hmm. it. Um, locally. And then, you know, when I decided that I wanted to start traveling out of state to hunt more, you know, and I wasn't going to, you know, have the, the finances to pay for an outfitter everywhere. You know, the only options are, you know, yeah, I can door knock, um, or try to find a lease or something like that, which yeah. in a lot of cases ends up being even more than an outfitter. Yeah. And when I know that I'm only going to be there for a week, maybe, or two, you know, three or four day trips, I was like, man, I don't want to pay for like a full lease for that that amount of time that I'm going to be there, I'm just going to try doing, doing public. Mm -hmm. Um, so I've done public in, you know, Wisconsin, we're pretty close to to Wisconsin. I can be across the border in about 45 minutes from my house to some, some public in Southern Wisconsin. So I've done that a bunch of times. Um, Kentucky, uh, I've done Iowa public. I've done Kansas now. Um, so I've been to a bunch of different States doing doing public. Um, and, and again, like for me, it was just, it was kind of a money thing. And it's also kind of a, a challenge thing, you know, and the other, the other part that I think draws a lot of us to, to public is, and this goes back to my story about the hundred acres, right? When you look at hunting as a whole, there's all these philosophies or techniques, if you will, that people want to try. They're like, man, I want to, I want to do this. I want to find a buck bed and I want to try to hunt that buck, or I want to hunt this transition, or I want to do all these different things. Sometimes on these smaller pieces of private, you can't do those things because the deer simply aren't doing what you need them to do on that piece of property to be able to do that. Like I can't hunt a buck bed if the buck is not bedding on my hundred acres. Mm -hmm. 
right? So with the public, it, it freed up some opportunities to go try and do these other things. You know, hey, if the wind is not right for, for something, like if I am hunting a larger area, I have a lot more options on what I can do, different ways to access it, different types of terrain to hunt. Um, plus, it's just nice to have a, a change of scenery sometimes. Like I said, hunting the, the same farm and the same stands all the time can get a little bit monotonous. Yeah, and I'm I'm right there with you. And unfortunately, I'm I'm in Texas, so we don't have a whole lot of public land. Access. I think you guys have less than we do in Illinois, Dude, <laughs> which we don't have much here. Well, and I have been putting in for five or six years now, and I have yet to pull a tag. And I mean, I probably put in for fifteen or sixteen different areas, and I've crazy. I've yet to pull one. So it's it's tough down here. But I definitely kind of I, I get what you're saying about you know it kind of gets old and. Uh, you know, we hunt about 200 acres down here and I find myself wanting to change up spots every year. Cause you're like, uh, you know, I kind of got yeah. bored with this spot. You know, let's, I wonder if I can try and do this or create this for these deer and, and hunt them differently and have better success. So yeah, I definitely understand what you're saying. There. I find myself moving around even on a hundred acres almost every year. <laughs> but what seems to happen is I work myself in a big circle mm-hmm. and eventually I end up back where I began Yes, <laughs> because that was probably the best spot. But then I was like, I need to change. I didn't kill one here last year. I got it. I got to do something different. And there's always going to be kind of micro movement changes, you know, from year to year based mm-hmm. on you know, maybe a tree falls down over a, a, you know, a trail that the deer used to use and they have to route around it or the food source changes or something like that. There's always going to be some sort of, I feel like micro adjustments that you have to make, especially when you're bow hunting every year. Um, But by and large, again, I find myself like five, six, seven years down the road, 10 years down the road being like, man, that tree that I hunted 10 years ago was actually a really good tree. (laughs) Maybe I need to get back to it, but I've, I've changed just for the sake of change. I think we do that a lot, you know, not just in our, our hunting, but like in our, our gear that we use, Mm -hmm. you know, you see guys all the time. I'm going to try a new broadhead this year. Well, what's wrong with your old one? Nothing killed a lot of deer with it. It's great broadhead, but just feel like trying something new. (laughs) I got, I got suckered in by that company's marketing. That's what happened. (laughs) Heck yeah. Yeah. Like what was it the new uh new UltraView site that dropped yesterday? Oh, I saw that. I I almost got suckered into it. And I'm like, uh, I don't need to pay that much money for that right now. I would be ashamed to admit how many products I've had in my cart at Lancaster, like online, <laughs> yeah. that I just don't like hit the button on, and then later on I'm like, I don't really need that, and then I delete it. Like it's it's terrible. I'm like a bulimic like cart shopper. Like I Dude, put it in there and then I take it out. I did the same thing with that yesterday. I was like, uh, <laughs> uh, if I buy this, how pissed is the wife gonna be? It's like <laughs> I probably shouldn't do this one. So. I've had a I've had a Stan Onyx clicker some release in my cart at Lancaster for probably two months. And every time I go to do it, I'm like, do I really need to do this? There's nothing wrong with the release I have right now. But then in the back of my mind, I'm like, PJ says it's really good. Maybe I need one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, man, let's, um, I want to circle back to public land and, and before yeah. we kind of, you know, one of the issues with hunting public land is a lot of people face traffic, you know, other hunters, but before we get to that, kind of want to pick your brain and find out how you approach scouting on public lands, you know, to identify those potential hunting spots. So a lot of times you're going out of state, like you're going to Kentucky this year, you probably, most people don't have the chance to go out there and do any kind of pre-season scouting or anything. So how are you using an app like HuntStand or just kind of going around looking at trying to identify those spots? Sure. Yeah. I mean, an app like HuntStand has been invaluable for a variety of reasons for this whole public land out-of-state hunting movement, right? Not just for, you know, number one, finding the public lands and knowing where they're at, right? Using the map layers to be like, okay, this is, you know, and in a lot of cases, I'm looking to go to areas that have maybe multiple different pieces of public within driving distance of where I want to be. Just in case I'm not finding what I want here, I know I've got, okay, plan B, plan C, I could could jump around, move around a little bit based on some of that pressure and traffic like you're talking about. So that's the first thing is just locating it. Beyond that, once I kind of hone in on like, this is an area I want to go to, um, I do a ton of map scouting. And for me, um, when I can, it's mostly based on topography. Okay. So I'm using topo maps to identify terrain features. Um, 
kind of at the macro level, at the high level macro level, to figure out like where those those pinch points and funnels and saddles and and things may be, um, and that those are going to be my starting points. So for mm-hmm. me, typically what I'm going to do is I'm going to drop points onto the map. I'm going to use, you know, markers and say like, Hey, this is a spot I want to check out like ahead of time. So like, I'll do that before I ever step foot on the ground. And then once I get there, um, to go hunting, you know, in a lot of cases, I am trying to pre-scout during the spring. If I know I'm going to be going there that fall in, in nine out of 10 times. Um, just about everywhere I've ever gone, I've, I've done that. Now, once I've been there and I know what I'm dealing with, I don't tend to go back every year mm-hmm. because I, I have a, a cursory understanding of the area and kind of where I want to be. But I do try to make it a point to get there in February or March if I, if I can. Yeah. It really helps for me. What it helps to do is just confirm that what you saw on the map is what's actually there in real life. You know, it's that old boots on the ground scouting, uh, because sometimes what looks good on a map, you get there and you're like, and eh, you know, this just isn't as, as hot as I thought it was going to be. And when you're going on these out of state trips that are limited in the amount of time, like you have to be able to cut out bad areas quickly because yeah. you certainly don't want to be wasting your limited amount of time hunting in those spots. So that's where that preseason really comes into play. Uh, and then I try to leave myself a little bit of time when I get down there, kind of that first day to drive around, look at crop rotation, because that's mm-hmm. a big thing. You know, if you're there in the winter, the crops aren't planted yet. And you're like, okay, this field was, you know, corn this year. I'm going to assume that it's probably going to be beans this year based on the rotation, but you just never know. Sometimes you get there and it's a, it was a wheat winter wheat field over the over the winter that they picked and, and didn't do anything with, or they planted corn again or whatever. So yeah. um, getting that drive around or that initial walk around to understand the lay of the food, uh, then I'll kind of finalize my game plan for where I'm going to go hunt. Okay. So I want to back up just a little bit. You talked about specific terrain features that you're looking for, like pinch points. Uh, how are you identifying those? within HuntStand, when you're doing your e-scouting, you know, what are you looking for? You're sure. looking for those tight topo lines, uh, yep. you're looking for creek beds. Like, what are you specifically looking for to identify sure. those areas? The first thing I would say is to anybody that wants to do this, I would highly recommend going and picking up an old book. It's called, uh, what is it called? Mapping Trophy Bucks by Brad Herndon. Is that what it's called? Uh, hold on. Mapping Trophy Bucks. Um you can, it looks like you can still get it on Amazon. This was written like in the nineties, I want to say by Brad Herndon. Uh, It is a fantastic book when it comes to just generally getting an understanding of topography and how deer use it Mm -hmm. uh, and how to use maps to scout for whitetails. You know, going back to those old arrow cresting days, my dad used to hunt uh, Northern Wisconsin a lot when I was a kid. And this is again, back before apps and everything, we had these giant topo maps that he would order from some map company and they were laminated. They were four foot by four foot and we'd lay them out and we'd look at all those maps ahead of time you know, doing the same thing that I'm doing now with an app Mm -hmm. on my phone, we used to do with physically printed maps. But yes, mapping trophy bucks is really where it began for me probably 20 years ago when I read that book. So now what I'm doing is yes, I'm heavily looking at at topo maps. Um, To your point, I'm, I like to, to go into areas that have, you know, pretty decent elevation changes and terrain features, because that's the easiest stuff to e-scout for me. You know, as an example, the piece of public that we're getting ready to go hunt in Kentucky, a portion of it is pretty hilly, pretty steep um, terrain. And then there's a good portion of it that's just a big flat river bottom ground. And I kind of avoid that section because for me, it's a little bit more difficult to, you have to put boots on the ground in that case to go find those areas that the deer are using. You're using more aerial maps at that point. Um, but there's only so much you can see from an aerial map of a big chunk of flat woods, right? I got to get boots on the ground to figure that out. takes up a lot of my time. So I kind of just like push that off the board to a certain extent. I go gravitate to the area that's got more topography where I know deer are going to use that topography in certain ways. So I'm looking for those points, you know, that have kind of steep drops on one or both sides of them. Mm -hmm figuring that you're probably going to get a buck bedding 
in or around one of those points. You know, in in most cases, that's been my experience. Um, and, you know, if you were to look at a topo map and find a chunk of timber that has, you know, a good, well-defined point with, you know, pretty steep topography, again, on one, if not both sides of that point, you could pretty much guarantee that 80% of the time there's going to be a buck of some sort betting or multiple bucks betting on or around that point. They yeah. just really seem to prefer that. So I'm looking for that. Um, you know, er, that's early season, right? When, when betting to food is your main thing, if you're hunting the rut, I'm going to look a lot more for saddles. I'm going to look for, uh, benches, uh, on the side of a ravine, you know, so a bench is going to be something that's like, you have a fairly steep ravine. So you got those tight topple lines, mm -hmm. but all of a sudden you got a spot in there where those lines are a little bit farther apart. Yeah. So maybe it's steep and then it flattens out a little bit and then gets steep again, those spots, um, you know, saddles, you know, which are areas where those deer are going to cross over the top. Um, you know, I'm looking for that type of stuff on a, on a topo map first. And again, that's where I'm dropping my pins. And then what I'm also doing is I'm trying to figure out how I would access those, what directions I would access them yeah. based on wind, because obviously you don't know what the wind's going to be when you get there. Right. So I'm going to try to have some sort of an idea of like, hey, if we're going to have south winds and I'll watch the weather for the days leading into my hunt, mm -hmm. be like, OK, we're going to have south winds. We're going to have north winds. We're going to have an east wind, whatever. And then I'll try to start narrowing down some of those pinpoints, be like, OK, well, this spot doesn't look like it's going to work on this wind based on my access or wherever the food may be. So I may put that one in my back pocket, you know, as like a plan C and then I'm going to try to narrow down to those primary ones that I really want to get in there and check out first thing when I get there. Man, that's, that's all really good information. Uh, one of the questions I have, you know, I, cause I'm unfamiliar with it. You know, I'm not a big public land guy. The only public land I hunt is when I go out West after big game. And one of the things that those big guy, big game guys look at is they try to find like those Northeast facing slopes a lot of times. Are you particularly looking for any slope like that on some of the topography, or is that really even a factor with public land whitetail? Not really. You know, I know a lot of guys, the, the only time that I feel like a slope face really plays a, a factor is maybe like really during the late season when it's cold yeah. and snowy and you get, you know, deer that are you know, preferably betting on some sort of, you know, south exposure mm -hmm. um, where they can get a little bit more sun and warmth. Yeah. But and like this time of the year, like I anticipate temps probably in the 80s and 90s when we're down there, you know, there's still leaves on the trees. Like, I don't know that the deer necessarily care um, about the direction of the slope kind of at that time of the year. I mean, yeah. I know that they don't like to bed on on the actual slope. That's why you're looking for those benches and those points and those areas. Um, I don't think the deer like to bed where it's actually sloped. They, they want a little bit flatter ground. Yeah. Uh, and then in my experience, you know, they tend to not bed low. And I think it's just a, a wind thing, you know, wind swirling all over the place. You get a little bit more consistent winds the higher you go. Um, so I feel like they can be a little bit better protected um, bedding higher. So again, that's kind of what I'm looking for. I'm looking for that you know, top half to top third, mm -hmm. you know, bench. And then I'm looking for points. And then obviously food sources is a, is a really big thing, especially in early September. So you're looking for, you know, beans or hay or something like that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Those are all good nuggets there for anybody that's paying attention to that. So hopefully a couple folks picked up on that. So the next thing I kind of want to talk about is, you know, you've identified these key features, you've identified, you've put markers down. Are you identifying where you want to put stands yet or any kind of pop-up lines or any kind of trees that you're wanting to get up in? Like, are you just generally looking at the area and saying, I want to get my boots on the ground and find something yeah. to go in? Yeah, that's what I'm doing. I mean, it's really hard because, I mean, I've, I've fallen victim to this in the past where I'm like, all right, this is where I need to be. And then I get there and I'm like, okay, I see what the sign is. I see what the deer are doing. And I look around and I'm like, well, crap, there's not, there's not a tree here. Yeah. There's nowhere I can get into on the, this wind or there's no shot. Yeah. I can get into this tree, but now I'm on public and I can't just come in here with a chainsaw and cut everything down. Right. So if there's no shot, it's like, okay, well, that tree would work, but there's no shot to, to the trail or to the field edge or whatever. So, mm -hmm. um, 
I try not to get too attached to areas because again, I've made that mistake in the past where I'm like, this is the spot. I've e-scouted it. This is where I need to be. This is where I'm going to hunt tonight. And then I go in there that night and I'm like, well, crap, this isn't going to, this isn't going to work, you know? And then now I'm walking around. I mean, I've, I've legitimately had times on public land here in Illinois where I have walked into a spot and walked around with 50 pounds of crap on my back for an hour couldn't find a tree to get into mm. and then and then just left Dang. i mean that was back when i was still carrying a, a full tree stand and full-size sticks and camera gear and all my gear and clothing and i was dying and sweating and huffing and puffing and i, I finally just got so pissed that i was like i'm out of here i just went to my truck and left i didn't even hunt Jeez. so uh <laughs> yeah yeah you gotta get in shape for that stuff too yeah no doubt let's talk about uh public pressure you know, ever since the hunting public and other groups and personalities have come out and really promoted it, I've seen more and more traffic over the past few years. And so how are you using that pressure to your advantage? You know, are you, sure. you know, like example, those elk guys, they either go really deep and get past that traffic or sometimes they let the traffic that goes in deep push the elk back towards a road. I mean, sure. how are you kind of approaching that same, are you, are you using that same philosophy or how's your approach look? Well, I, I still think there's a bit of a misconception on the amount of pressure and traffic on public land in a lot of cases. And I'll give you this exact scenario, you know, here in Illinois, land's hard to come by, yeah. right? It just is, you know, leases are expensive. Ground is expensive, you know? So if you're the average person, let's say that doesn't own their own property mm -hmm. and you're you're hunting a piece of property whether you're leasing it or you got permission usually you're not the only person on it yeah so on a, as an example i got a hundred acre lease that in the past i've shared it with any this year it's just me and another guy mm -hmm. um in the past we've had up to four people okay. on a hundred acre lease right wow. just to, to spread the cost out right yeah. now typically we're not all hunting it at the same time but yeah. there have been cases where there's two or three of us hunting on a hundred acres at one point. And it, it never felt super overcrowded, right? It was like, Hey, I'm going to be over on this Ridge. You're going to be on this Ridge. That guy's going to be on that Ridge. We're not going to see each other. We can't hear each other calling. We kind of coordinate, you know, together. Sometimes we see the same deer passing through the woods. Oh, yeah. there's a buck and yeah, whatever. But it never felt like crazy, crazy pressure. Right. But even let's say two guys on a hundred acres, that's one guy for every 50 acres. Mm -hmm you get into a thousand acre chunk of, of public, right? And you yeah. show up and there's a couple, there's a couple trucks there and maybe there's six trucks, eight trucks on a, on a thousand acres. And you're like, holy crap, there's eight trucks parked here, right? Well, in that case, you're still looking at well over a hundred acres per guy. True. On that piece. Whereas on my private piece, I'm hunting 50 acres or less per guy. So in a lot of cases, there's actually fewer people on the public per acre than there are on the private. Mm -hmm. Now, the downside of that becomes for the guys that are smart and know where to go, they tend to congregate in what look like the best areas on the map. That yeah. can be one of the downfalls of e-scouting, which is everybody's doing it. We're all looking for the same stuff. We're all listening to these same podcasts. We figure out, hey, these are the, the best areas to be. So um, that's where it can get a little bit tricky where you're like, I've scouted this area. I'm in here. This is a great spot. You get in there and somebody else is, is there. Right. So in my case, I always, I do a couple of different things. Number one, um, I'll say this much. I don't think you're out walking people anymore. No. That used to be a thing on public no. where, it, but now it's like, yeah, you can't outwalk everybody. Uh -uh. Everybody wants, you can only be so hardcore. You can only go so far, yeah. you know, on a thousand acre piece of land, I can only get so far from one parking lot before I'm actually getting closer to the next parking lot down, down the way. And that's usually about a half mile, maybe three quarters of a mm -hmm. mile. It's not that far. Um, so you're, the, the idea that you're going to out, out hustle everybody and outwork them unless you're on like out west right yeah these guys that are going deep 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 for elk like yeah you can do it there most of your public land whitetail stuff you ain't you ain't out walking anybody mm -hmm. so now you just have to be a little bit smarter about what what you do where you go trying to find some of those overlooked spots you can 
I guess, out hustle people if you're trying to get into some more difficult areas. There are always going to be spots that are going to be more difficult to access where you are going to lose a certain percentage of people, whether it's a steep ass hill that somebody doesn't want to climb yeah. or a swamp they don't want to walk across or a, a deep creek or river that they can't really get across very easily. You know, there are ways that you can try to kind of leave some of those folks behind. For me, it's been about just having a multitude of options. Yeah. If I get to spot number one and somebody's in it, I'm going to spot number two. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, you can always just be like, hey, I'm just still going to hunt here. You know, we could be a couple hundred yards apart. You know, what I've found in my public land hunting through the years is that the other hunters that I meet are very cordial. They're very nice. They're very willing to modify where they're going to go based on where I'm going to go. Like if I'm in a parking lot getting ready, and I've had this happen. I'm, I'm getting ready. I'm getting ready to, to walk out. And, it, and a guy walk, pulls in the park parking lot behind me. Oh, hey, man, how's it going? Good, good. Hey, man, where are you, where are you headed to? I'm going to go back over XYZ in this area. Oh, cool. Yeah, I was thinking about going there. But I tell you what, you're already going to go there. I'll go somewhere else. I'll go yeah. over here. Or I've done the same thing for other guys. Oh, you're going to be back there. No problem. I got a plan B in my back pocket. I'm going to go over here. Um, so for me, it had that hasn't been a, as big of an issue. The thing that sucks is just when somebody walks in on you, not knowing that you're there. You know, that's a bummer. Yes. Um, and there's not much you can do to to control that. I mean, we've had guys walk in. I remember we hunted early season Wisconsin opener a couple of years ago. We had guys walk in and set up 200 yards from us, and they were like grunting and rattling and just <laughs> all sorts of stuff on opening weekend. And we just kind of <laughs> laughed. Like it was opening morning, I want to say. So yeah. we weren't really super high on like killing anything anyways. We just wanted to be there. But uh, yeah, I mean, you just, you take the good with the bad, right? Yeah, you have to, man. And I think that's where I kind of want to take this conversation next is uh, you had some really good points about using that pressure to your advantage and stuff or not necessarily using it to your advantage, but more or less, you, you just got to have all those game plans, plain and simple. You just A through Z, you got to have as many game plans. You have to. You do. Just yeah, and situation. having plan B isn't good enough. You got to have C, D, and E because you just never know what you're going to run into. And Because if you run out of plans and you're like sitting there and it's three o'clock and you're like, crap, I got I to gotta get out. Yeah. And, and I don't know what to do. Now you're just flying blind. And yeah, you could luck into something at some point, but uh, it's certainly better to be prepared when you can thousand percent so i mean that's where i want to take the conversation next is you alluded to it a little bit ago but you know was let's talk about being a friendly public land hunter and being respectful to the other guys other fellow hunters that you're sharing that piece with or you know that big section with and i liked what you talked about in the parking lot you know trying to make sure find out where everybody's going so that way you just don't cross paths or anything what are some other things that you feel like, especially with season nearing us, that the listeners definitely need to listen in on just in terms of being a good fellow hunter? Sure. I think, I mean, that's a big one. Just trying to be respectful when you do run into somebody, mm -hmm. just trying to get out of there as quickly and quietly as possible. You know, sometimes you run into a guy and it's unfortunate because you may be going past where they're at. Yeah. So it's like, I guess I, I get it. They want you to turn around and leave. And you're just like, sorry, dude, I'm going, I got, and I got to go through here. And yeah. it's usually just a quick wave and a, I'm out of here. And you know, that, that stinks. I think, you know, in the mornings, you know, you know, from a safety perspective, you know, having a light and always make sure you're using a light walking in, you know, if somebody is getting close to you, just give them a little courtesy flash. If you're up in the tree, mm -hmm. that's kind of like, uh, you know, how like people in Jeeps and motorcycles, like wave to each other yeah. when, when they drive by, yeah. I feel like that the, the courtesy flashlight flash from a guy in the dark, who's already in a, in a stand when you're going through the woods, you know, if you get too close to them, um, that's kind of the, the public land or I call it the public land wave. I had one the other a couple of years ago. I was in a, a stand again, Wisconsin, early season. It was 90 degrees. And I had this kid come walking by with his bow and he's in a pair of shorts and he's just walking the kind of the edge of this field and he sees me and he kind of just gives me the, the public land wave and just moseys yeah. on his way. It keeps going. Um, so yeah, just trying to be respectful. You know, we're all out there doing the same thing. You know, mm -hmm. it's been cool through the years. Again, I haven't hunted a ton, ton of public land, but 
the times that I have hunted it, like everybody I've met has been cool. You know, I've exchanged numbers with a lot of people, including some guys that I've, you know, still kind of kept, uh, you know, in touch with through yeah. the years. Um, in fact, I just texted a guy yesterday or the day before about Kentucky. Um, cause he, I met him the last time I was down there and I was like, Hey man, are you going to be down there? Have you been down there the last year or two? What have you been seeing? You know, and he's like, yeah, you know, I haven't been down there, but I'm trying to get down there this fall. You know, this is kind of some of the stuff that I'd be looking for. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's cool. I know a lot of folks that have made, you know, pretty good friends and connections with people. Uh, the other thing that I've done with folks through the years is, you know, a lot of times I'm on these trips and I might be by myself. Yeah. And I meet other people that are by themselves. And I, and I like to exchange numbers just to be like, hey, man, if, if something comes up, you shoot a deer, you need help tracking it, you need help dragging it you get yourself into a pinch, you get stuck on the side of the road, you need to get pulled out, whatever. Like it's nice to have somebody. Um, so I like to do that as well. Uh, unfortunately for me, I get recognized a lot. A lot. Yeah, yeah. I imagine <laughs> you so, know, man. in the parking lot, you're trying to like maintain a low, low key, but people, you know, which, which is cool. I mean, I, I enjoy that too, but yeah, I mean, I just, just again, just trying to be a good person, be friendly, be respectful. We're all out there trying to do the same thing. Um, I met some guys in Iowa when I was there a couple of years ago, they were actually, mm -hmm. I pulled into a parking lot and I was getting ready to go deer hunt and they were actually going out bird hunting. And the guy was like, Oh yeah, man, where are you hunting? And I wasn't going anywhere near where they were going to bird hunt. And they're like, no man, it's totally fine. We'll, we'll go somewhere else. I was like, guys, you really don't have to, like, I'm not even anywhere close to where you're going. Like, no, 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 man, it's good. You go deer hunt and we'll go somewhere else. Those so, are good guys right there. Yeah, for sure. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you've just come across somebody that's just pissed because, you know, you're going in dark and they were maybe there 30 minutes before, like kind of what you were talking about earlier, where you're just walking through and you're walking past where they are. Like, yep. have you ever just found yourself in a situation just dealing with somebody nasty before? I haven't. I know some of my friends have for sure. Yeah, definitely. And it's usually somebody just chirping at them from a tree stand. <laughs> Fortunately, it hasn't like, uh, gone into like a fist fight in a parking yeah. lot somewhere, you know, type of thing. But uh, yeah, for sure. You know, people are a little crazy. And then, I mean, I've seen in a lot, of, like here in Illinois, we're not supposed to be leaving tree stands in, in, the, in the trees on public mm -hmm. guys do it all over the place, you know, and it sucks because yeah. there's not enough DNR officers to really enforce any of this. They can't walk around every piece of public and look for, for tree stands and guys are kind of like staking their claim, so to speak. That's, I think that's what they're doing. You know, they're trying to keep other people out of that area, mm -hmm. but, um, but yeah, for me personally, no, I haven't had any really like noticeable, like negative interactions with anybody. That's a good thing. I mean, I've had, I've had some interesting run-ins myself on public land just out west, but that's a completely different ball game. Just uh, yeah, some and they funny they things. hate the non-residents. Oh yeah, <laughs> it they're... seems like the locals. Well, we were. I'll, I'll, I got a funny story. It was we were elk hunting and we were waiting for the thermals to switch on us because we had some elk bugling below. And we're like, God, oh, there's really no good way to get around it. We're we're just gonna have to wait for them to switch. And so we're like, well, let's just drop in. You know eat lunch real quick, and then we'll drop down in there. And we're sitting there, and one of the guys I was hunting with, he goes, did you hear that? It sounded like somebody yelling. I'm like, no. But about that time, here comes this black lab just zipping by us. And we're like, that was odd. And uh, we're like, this is really weird. But at the same time, it's also grouse season up in the mountains. And we didn't. it just didn't ring a bell with us. And then about that time, you start hearing shots in this lab just zips back by us again and we go out and there's this dude just walking down the middle of this meadow just blaze orange like oh you uh you guys see any grouse we're like no but we got some elk down there that we're trying to go after and he's like oh okay cool and he just kept walking right to where the elk were, we're like all right <laughs> we're just gonna back out of here yeah i mean it's just like i said you just have to be prepared for that type of stuff to happen when you go do public, like yeah. you're going to have some hunts that get screwed up and ruined. There's just no two ways around it. And I think if you're mentally prepared for that to happen, when you go in, like it's, it's not as big of a deal, Yeah, you know, or you're just like, I expected this to happen. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing too, especially in a lot of these whitetail spots, like somebody walking through the woods, isn't necessarily like, the worst thing in the world that could possibly happen. Yeah. You know, I've had plenty of times where I've bumped into under other hunters or had guys walk in on me or walk behind and I've still seen deer that night. Yeah. 
you know, so it's, it's not the end of the world. Sometimes we make it out to be the end of the world and, and it's not. Well, I mean, it's no different than, you know, I'm sure you've had it before, like on your personal property where you go in and you mess with the stand or you hang something or you put a camera up and heck, 30 minutes later, there's a shooter buck on camera or some deer, like mm-hmm. they're still going to go through that area nine out of 10 yeah. times. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And so, and that's one of the big things on public is the mental aspect of just not getting discouraged when things like that happen. Um, again, I've had, I had a friend of mine that shot a real nice buck on, on public here in Illinois a couple of years mm-hmm. ago, you know, a half hour, 45 minutes after he had another hunter who was walking out for the morning. I think my, my buddy was sitting like all day yeah. type of thing. And he had a guy walk past him on his way back to the truck and 45 minutes later, he shoots a buck. So, I mean, again, it's just, it's a lot of it is a mental game. Yeah. Big time. And like, I think the best thing that you can do just going into public land is knowing that you're probably going to have run-ins. And like you said, if you just accept it and know it, you won't get as pissed unless you have like a booner or Pope and young buck right there, you know, and they walk in as you're at full draw. But the thing is, it's like, they don't know that. Yeah. You know? So it's like, yeah, I get, you might be mad at the situation in general, but not necessarily the person. It's like, they didn't, they didn't do anything wrong. They were just walking around. That's that's a good way to look at it is be mad at the situation, not the person. Yeah. Exactly. Well, man, I, I know we're running short on time here. And so the last thing I kind of want to cover is let's talk about some lessons you've learned yourself or just, you know, from your experiences hunting public lands, you know, A, how has it influenced your overall approach to hunting? And just, you know, do you have any other, you know, B, are there any nuggets or, you know, things you can share with the listeners just in regards to public land in general? Um, yeah, I mean, first thing I would say, just, just go do it, go try it. It, it is fun. It's enjoyable to get out and see new things and, and experience different types of hunting yeah. because again, for so many of us, we're limited to these small properties, but so many of the ideas that we have about hunting are big macro ideas where sometimes we're just limited in our execution of them. Mm-hmm. So it does allow you to get out and, and try new things, uh, which I think is, is really fun. Um, I've stressed this a lot, but just, you know, have multiple options and multiple plans because things are going to get blown up. Things are going to go wrong, different wind directions, weather, corn, you know, farmers out picking corn when you get there or whatever, another guy's in your, in your spot, like having as many options as possible is just a huge, huge thing. Um, and don't get discouraged. That's probably the, the number one thing that I think I screwed up on, on my first trip out to Kansas public land hunting, which we had gone in the spring, scouted a bunch of walk-in hunt areas, you know, figured out the ones that looked the best that we yeah. wanted to, to hunt. You know, we stayed in Turkey hunted, killed a Turkey, uh, had a great time, came back in the fall, day one, we went out to start walking and scouting and there was trail cameras and tree stands all over the places that we had scouted in the spring and we got discouraged, right? So instead of just sticking with our plan, which was these are the best properties and the best spots and just continuing to hunt them, we were like, Oh my God, we can't go here. There's other people here. We got to go find somewhere else. Well, we never saw another person, right? Yes, there were stands and yes, there were cameras. We never saw anybody hunting them. There was never anybody parked there, but our fear was always, we're going to be here and somebody's going to come in yeah. and they're going to get pissed or screw up our hunt or whatever. So we have to get away, get away, get away. And we ended up, you know, settling on hunting pieces of property that weren't as good as the ones that we wanted to hunt that we had scouted and all for what, you know, because mm-hmm. we got mentally discouraged and, and kind of run out of those, those spots when in retrospect, I wish we would have just stayed the course and, and stuck with our plan until we were forced to change. Um, that's the mental thing where it's like, yeah, just cause somebody else was ar- around or has a stand or a camera nearby, doesn't mean that you shouldn't be hunting there, right? Again, think sometimes when you put it into terms of like, what would I do on public land? Or I'm sorry, on private land? Like I got stands and cameras all over the place. Heck, half those stands, I never even hunt. I I might hang it and never even get back to it to go hunt it. So, you know, what what does it really matter if there's a stand there and somebody was in it a week ago or two days ago or even yesterday? Does it really matter if it's a good spot and it's the right time of year and the conditions and the access and everything is right? Like probably doesn't matter as much as we think it does. Uh, We tend to over inflate the impact that other hunters are having on Mm -hmm. an area. Um, 
and then we seek out these other areas where nobody's at. But sometimes we're seeking out those areas, but nobody's there for a reason. Could be because the spot sucks, <laughs> you true. know, and then you end up kind of running yourself right out of the game. That's true, man. That's true. So last question. Have you learned anything on public that you've taken them back and applied to like one of your private pieces? Um, I don't, I'm sure that I have, I don't know if there's anything in particular. I tend to hunt them very similar to one another mm -hmm. when I can, you know, terrain features for me has always been a very big, big part of how I hunt. Yeah. Um, you know, when you're bow hunting, like we're doing, you got to get close. And the best way to get them close is to use some sort of terrain to funnel or filter them close to you. You know, the other options are, you know, decoying, calling, you know, hunting over maybe a water hole or something like that. But mm -hmm. outside of something that's going to attract them to a specific spot, it's all about terrain uh, for me or, you know, other features, you know, within the woods, whether it's an inside edge or, a, you know, a tree has fallen down or a, something to create some sort of pinch point. Um, that's my main starting point for all of my hunting, whether it's public or private. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I always start there and then try to try to fine tune from there, because, again, the game is all about getting close. It's all about getting within bow range. You know, seeing a deer isn't good enough. I, it needs to be close enough for me to kill it. Sweet. Dude. Well, man, tell all listeners real quick where they can find yourself on socials and anything with bowhunting.com, bowhunter diet, sure. all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Bowhunting.com is pretty easy to find. <laughs> Just go to bowhunting.com. <laughs> you know, most of our socials are like at bowhunter die, I think is like most of our stuff on like Instagram. Yeah. Uh, me, me personally, Instagram, I am at Sir Czar, which is an old holdover thing from when I was in like junior high or high school, something like that. So Back I never, it was like my screen name on AOL instant messenger in like 1997. And, was that uh, your I've MySpace just, name? <laughs> yeah. I've just carried it along for the ride through the years. Heck yeah. So yeah, that's definitely the best ways to find us. Cool, man. Well, love it, dude. Well, man, I really appreciate your time. Just hopping on the podcast with me today and good luck to you out in Kentucky, man. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. All right, y'all, there you go. Hopefully you were able to pick up on some of those golden knowledge nuggets from Justin on chasing after public whitetails with your bow in hand, or you might even go muzzleloader, rifle, who knows what you're going to be doing, but hopefully you were able to pick up on some of these tips and tactics that Justin brought to y'all from using hunt stand and just some overall general knowledge to chase after public land whitetails, how to avoid pressure and just going at it how he does. So we just want to thank y'all again for tuning in to the Stand Podcast. Good luck this fall, and we'll see you on the next one.